first of all, while I'm starting my recorders, I just uh, thank you guys so much for allowing me the opportunity to teach these things. They, uh, the study of revival in American history is just burned in my heart for years and it's just not well known and that's especially the case with this revival and if you haven't heard this story before you're gonna marvel that you haven't because for its scope this revival that started in New York City also in Ulster Ireland is simply mind-boggling. I feel like I'm just going to give you an outline. Uh, this is the third time I've taught this, and every time I study for it, I'm simply overwhelmed at what happened here. But I want to show you a couple of slides as background information. First, the man that you see on the right is named Jeremiah Calvin Lanfear. He was about 40 and he was hired by the North Dutch Church in southern Manhattan because they were so uh, sorry to see that so many people were leaving lower Manhattan in those days and the church was dwindling down to nothing and they hired him for a little less than a thousand dollars a year for some kind of an outreach anything that we could uh, reach out to the people in lower Manhattan and so he is the main subject of the American revival. Uh, that church is very interesting to me. It was the church of James Waddell Alexander, the son of one of two sons of Archibald Alexander, who I always mention if I'm teaching anything in church history in America for any extended time because of the debt I owe to him. But he was the pastor of Jeremiah Lanfear for about nine years before he was Jeremiah called to the North Dutch Church. But the Fifth Presbyterian Church in Middle Manhattan has uh, part of my history because I was stationed in New York City in 84 and 85 in the Coast Guard and I would take a ferry boat in uh, come down to about Penn Square um, Penn Station excuse me and uh, walk down to Central Park and then I would walk six miles south to get to South Ferry where I would catch the boat again to get to Governor's Island and anytime I saw an old church like this it really caught my eye and intrigued me and I would see if I could look in a window if I could get in if I could look around because I knew it would have to have a history there was no way in 1984 that I would have known that that was the church of J.W. Alexander um, I had only known of his father uh, but so I tried to go into there, and a uh, man that looked like the pastor greeted me, and within one minute I knew I was face-to-face -face with a complete theological liberal, and I just left astonished. But its fourth pastor was J.W. Alexander. And one of the great biographers and there's a number of books on this awakening that were put in print but j edwin orr who died in 1987 really was the 
uh, chief historian to gather the information from this revival that it didn't stop here. It really was a worldwide outreach. And the other is Samuel Prime, this pastor, actually was the first to lay his eyes on the journals of Jeremiah Lanfear, and it's called The Power of Prayer, the New York Revival of 1858. And the reason it's uh, interesting to any kind of a student of history was it was the last book that Martin Lloyd-Jones recommended to be published before he passed away. Lloyd-Jones was such a student of revival, but the original of this work by J. Edwin Orr was uh, just under 600 pages, and it was published in 1945, but they abridged it. And if you have a Kindle and you're interested in a very good history, inexpensively, um, I bought it this week for $2.99. So here you see the advertisement, and I'll stop there uh, in the pictures so that I could tell you the story. The years leading up to 1857 were characterized by tremendous economic growth and prosperity in the United States. So prior to this time of revival, there was a real rich uh, background. Uh, everybody was prosperous. There was a population boom and the focus of many was on this world, and as a result, there was a deep decline in spiritual life. The population growth of New York City began to force the wealthy residents out of the downtown area where they were replaced by unchurched masses of working-class laborers. Many churches moved out of the city to accommodate their members. But in contrast to these churches, the North Dutch Reformed Church of Manhattan Uh, that's Ireland. I wanted to show you a picture of the. Unless that's in the lower left-hand corner. Uh, that's where it started for Jeremiah Lanfear. They, because so many people were moving out, he wanted to, or they wanted him to. Uh, doing outreach, and they didn't even give him any instruction of what to do. But he was he was diligent. He wasn't married. He was very godly, very pleasant young man and diligent, and his heart was so on fire for the Lord, but he didn't know how to reach these people until he came up with an idea of, as he was walking the streets and almost in despair, but what do I do? How do I reach these people? And he came up with the idea that in New York City, between 12 and 1, things were more uniform in those days. And between 12 and 1, all businessmen took a lunch break. And he got the idea to start a prayer meeting. A businessmen's prayer meeting where between 12 and 1, as you see in the sign that he put out there that he was inviting people to come in if they had five minutes, if they had 10 minutes, half an hour, or the whole hour um, to come and pray or give a testimony. Everything was limited to five minutes. And this was something that he wanted to do to reach out to the community. He had no idea what was going to happen here. So picture that the first day he gets into this uh, North Dutch church and he's up on the third floor 
He takes a stopwatch out. It's the first day of this prayer meeting. He takes a stopwatch out, puts it out in front of him, and he begins to wait. And it's 12, 10, and, you know, doubtless there was some anxiety and maybe some pacing. Well, was all this in vain? I passed out all these flyers to let men know about this, but is anything going to happen? And then 12, 20, 12, 25, and he's sitting there probably thinking it was a bad idea. But at 1230, the first person showed up at this prayer meeting. He heard the step uh, coming uh, up the stairs, and it was the first person. And then a little while later, a second person came, and another and another until there were six. But there wasn't anything notable about that first prayer meeting except that they said, this is a good idea, let's meet here in one week. And so next Wednesday... There were 20. So here's the story. It was exactly 12 noon on September 23rd, 1857, a little more than 150 years ago. A tall, middle-aged former businessman climbed creaking stairs to the third story of an old church building in the heart of lower New York City. He entered an empty room, pulled out his pocket watch, and sat down to wait. The placard outside said, prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock. Stop 5 to 10 or 20 minutes or the whole hour as your time admits. It looked like no one had the time. As the minutes ticked by, the solitary waiter wondered if it were all a mistake. For some three months, he had been visiting boarding houses, shops, and offices, inviting people to the 88-year-old North Old Dutch North Church at Fulton and William Street. The church had fallen on slim days. Old families had moved away. The business neighborhood was teeming with a floating population of immigrants and laborers. But... It began to take off in the second week, there were 20, and then the next week, there were more, and it continued to grow. And within a short time, all three floors of the old Dutch, North Dutch church were full of people that were coming in to pray. And then it started to spread out. By mid-February, Fulton Street was holding three simultaneous standing room only prayer meetings on three floors. This caused editor James Gordon Bennett to begin exploiting the prayer meetings in his New York Herald. So the press got involved there wondering what's going on here. Soon his rival Horace Greeley gave friendlier editorials in his New York Tribune. In April, Greeley dedicated an entire issue to the revival. Other papers across the nation quickly followed suit in a two-column editorial on March 20th. So this started in September of 1857. So March 20th of 1858, the New York Times had this to say about the revival. The great wave of religious excitement, which is now sweeping over this nation, is one of the most remarkable movements since the Reformation. So that's how this thing was beginning to grow. There was uh, no more room in the church. They moved out. They would go into other buildings and so on. And these people were wanting to get in to pray. I mean, if you look at the numbers, and this is just one page of some of the statistics that J. Edwin Orr had gathered together. And I'm looking through this book, and you're turning page after page to see the scope of what was going on. 
The article said it is most impressive to think that over this great land tens and fifties of thousands of men and women are putting to themselves at this time in a simple serious way the greatest question that can ever come before the human mind what shall we do to be saved from sin as the noontime prayer meetings increased attended predominantly by the male workers of the city the effect on the city was tremendous many ministers began having nightly services in which to lead men to christ a chain reaction of church after church began to hold morning afternoon and evening meetings for both prayer and the counseling of those concerned about their souls so they went from once a week to once a day to three times in a day The author of this book, Samuel Prime, said the same scenes were soon reported from all over the nation. So what had happened originally is a 21-year-old person came to this prayer meetings and said, Kenton, we uh, duplicate this in Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, the prayer meeting started to expand. People across the nation from New York to California, Florida to Maine, it affected judges and college students, businessmen and housewives. At times, schools had to close in order to pray and seek God. People across the nation prayed and churches filled. In February, Philadelphia established a noonday prayer meeting, at first in a church on 4th Street, but soon removed to James Hall. Soon the entire accessible places were filled, floor, platform, galleries, boxes, aisles, and office. Never was there scarcely on the face of the earth such meetings as those in James Hall. The work spread from James Hall all over the city of Philadelphia. Prayer meetings were established in numerous places, public halls, concert rooms, engine and hose companies, houses, and in tents till the whole city of Philadelphia seemed pervaded with the spirit of prayer. Prayer meetings almost simultaneously were established because this started to spread throughout the country, what was in the country in 1858. And so it spread these prayer meetings to Boston, Baltimore, Washington, Richmond, Virginia, Charleston, Savannah, Mobile, New Orleans, Vicksburg, Memphis, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Chicago, and other cities shared in this glorious work. And I had said to Betty, we talked about it a couple of times this week, it even came to Kalamazoo, which was 60 miles south of Grand Rapids. And it was recorded there that uh, somebody was reading prayer requests. This person's prayer request wasn't in the room. It was just men in Kalamazoo and said that this lady wanted to them to pray for her husband who wasn't converted and immediately a man stood up in the assembly, a businessman, and he said, well, I have a praying wife, that must be for me. And he just, he broke down, he was crying, it affected him so much. But as if another person never heard anything that he had just said, a lawyer, the first person was uh, a bank smith, but a lawyer stood up and said, I think that that prayer request is for me. And he was weeping he was under conviction and so on and then two i mean three four five six men stood up in a period of half an hour claiming that that prayer was for them coming under conviction and by the end of this making a testimony that they had embraced christ and were repentant 
The fervor of this awakened religious interest had become intense at the end of the fourth month of the meetings and towards the close of the first month of the current year. The newspapers, both secular and religious in all parts of the country, speak of an unwanted revival of religion in all quarters far and near. Everywhere men were crowding to the meetings in the spirit with which they are impressed and which invites them to so general attention to the subject of religion seems to animate the whole land. This is the secular press reporting this. The northern, middle, western, and southern states were moved as by one common mighty influence. The spirit of the revival spread everywhere and seemed to permeate every nook and corner of the great republic. And I know, and I had studied this before, that this revival even went down to the southern churches and one of the pastors was uh, John L. Gerardo, and most of his assembly were black slaves. So there were 48 black slaves and possibly 12 white people. And this pastor really had a compassion on the slaves, typically because they met together in the southern churches. The slaves would be forced up into the gallery and the white people down below in the pews, and Gerardo switched that around. He gave the prominent place to the black slaves. But to give you an indication of what this revival did, because it came um, into that church, and within a couple of years, that church had gone from 60 people to over 600. So though the revival peaked in 1858, it did not stop there. Throughout the Civil War, camps had great revival meetings. Over 150,000 were converted in the Confederate Army alone. And uh, I was asked by a dear friend a couple of days ago, is this even documented? And I said, there's a book, for example, just on the revival in the Confederate armies. Uh, that's the title of the uh, book of the conversions that went on in the South during the Civil War. It also crossed the oceans in Britain. Close to a million people joined the churches due to the revival that swept the land. So I want to talk about the revival in Ireland. Unbeknownst to Jeremiah Lanfear, in almost the same month, in the same year, in 1857, uh, a young man was stirred up to pray as well. In the spring of 1856, an English lady by the name of Mrs. Colville, she was a Baptist, came to Balamena from Gateshead because she had time and money to spend for God. She began a program of house-to-house -house visitation with a view of winning souls for Christ. In November, she returned to England in low spirits, thinking that God had not acknowledged her labors and feeling that her work had been unfruitful. So she doesn't even know if she, if the seed had borne any fruit. Before she left, however, she had visited a certain Miss Brown, who lived in Mill Street, Balamena. On calling at this house, she had found two other ladies present, as well as a young man called James McKilkin. McKilkin came from the parish of Connor, about five miles from Alamena, and he worked in a linen warehouse in the town. Miss Brown and her companions were involved in the discussion on the subjects of predestination and free will, but they weren't even converted. They were just arguing doctrine. When she entered the house... The others asked Mrs. Colville whether or not she was a Calvinist, so they were sidetracking her. She did not answer this question directly, but rather spoke to the little group about the importance of seeking a personal interest in the Savior and the need of the new birth. 
What she had to say concerning the Savior left a profound impression spiritually upon James McKilkin, and a short time afterward he came to a saving knowledge of Christ. Now, it's really important um, that you understand that this lady wasn't against doctrine, but the argument about predestination or any other doctrine right then, whether it's true that uh, supralapsarianism or whether there's a covenant of works in the Garden of Eden or whether God has emotivity, that's sidetracking somebody that wants to share the gospel. And I say that, and I hate to say it, but um, this has been attacked, I told you in my first uh, lecture uh, by a, uh, professor in Grand Rapids, I said pastor before I, he was that too, but Professor Herman Hankel wrote a book called Ought the Church to Pray for Revival, and he had read Ian Paisley's account of this, and his point was these people claim to be in a revival, and yet this lady says, I don't want to talk about doctrine. I mean, that is such a misrepresentation of what in fact happen. But when you're trying to convince people of something, you will use extreme examples like that. But it did have an effect on McKilkin, and he worked in Bellamena, but he returned home to Kells every weekend. Prior to his conversion, he was known in the village as a person involved in cockfighting. Now, however, his outlook on life had changed. He came under the influence of the Reverend John Moore, the minister of Connor, Presbyterian Church who encouraged him to gather some of his converted friends. In other words, you should have a prayer meeting. So that's James McKilkin on the left, and he met somebody may, uh, named Jeremiah McNeely. That's an older picture of McNeely on the right. So you have a Jeremiah that was used in prayer in Manhattan and a Jeremiah that was used in prayer in Ulster in Ireland. And there were uh, for one thing, McKilkin had read the uh, biography of Mueller, George Mueller, and was really impressed at how God was answering his prayers, and he actually met with him. And uh, Mueller records that in his journal uh, that this young man had came to him and was inquiring from him about prayer for revival. And these young men began to pray. And the revival in Ireland took longer to spread than the one in Manhattan. So another thing that was really affecting these people in Ireland, and by this time they were really praying for revival, was they were starting to get reports of what was going on in Manhattan. And they, uh, as I read that testimony last week from Adam McGill and uh, Boviva, Ireland, they were waiting to get the reports that were coming over from New York City, and they would share these, and it would just stir them up to pray the more, because they were so impressed at what they were hearing. So one of his friends, Jeremiah Manili, or Jerry, as he was well known, who was a faithful churchgoer, but lacked a sure knowledge that his sins were forgiven, sought out James McKilkin. After a long conversation, Jerry found himself in a state of seeking God. As he read the Bible one day, wrestling over these things and confused in mind, the Spirit spoke clearly a scripture to his heart. He slapped his knee, exclaiming, I see it now, and arose assured of his sins forgiven and of his name written in heaven. Around the same time, McKilkin had led two other young men to Christ, Robert Carlyle and John Wallace. And so here was God's raw material to work with. So you had 
four men that were praying together here and six on the first day there in Manhattan. So James McKilkin sent off for a first edition of Mueller's narrative of his life and labors called Life of Trust. It had a profound effect upon him in starting the prayer meetings also. So these things were beginning to sow seeds in his mind that maybe God could do a work here. And beginning in September of 1857, these four banded together in a bond of fellowship to meet weekly for prayer and Bible study. Their sole desire was their own edification and the salvation of others around them. The simple place they chose to meet was at the schoolhouse at Kells. During the long winter of 1857 and 1858, every Friday evening, these young men gathered an armful of peat each and taking their Bibles made their way to the old schoolhouse. There they read and meditated upon the scriptures of truth and with hearts aflame with a pure first love poured out their prayers to the God of heaven. Everything that they steadfastly held to over the next year centered around three great fundamental truths of scripture. These were the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, the sufficiency of the Holy Scripture, and the secret of holy supplication. This not only marked those small fervent prayer meetings, but soon covered the whole land in living manifestation as God stepped down and marched through the land. These prayer meetings continued with no visible results for three months, but on New Year's Day, 1858, the first convert was brought in. So look at how parallel these two revivals are, and they know nothing of each other uh, in the beginning of the year in 1858 in both cases these things start to take off after that others were born from above and now joined the prayer meetings by the end of the year about 50 men were meeting with them to wrestle and prevail in prayer the one cry and burden of all their prayers was for an outpouring of the spirit upon themselves and the surrounding area they were hungry and determined to pray through to god Many of the local church people ridiculed, mocked, and opposed this type of praying. They were happy to rest back and do nothing, saying the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, so we don't need to pray for the Holy Ghost. Such stagnant attitudes never bring revival. Well, there was a great revival in Ireland, and uh, this William Gibson, who wrote this book in 1860 called the year of grace a history of the 1859 ulster revival was with one other man sent to manhattan to witness the things that were going on and report them and he was beginning to see so much of what was going on in ireland that people pressured him to put it in a history and so it was published the year of grace william gibson but the revival never stopped there. It came to Wells, and that was so big that a, per, uh, a pastor had to be commissioned to write the revival that was coming to Wells, and his name was Thomas Phillips. And the Welsh revival of 1859 was just amazing. I mean, it's amazing that we don't know this history, but to give you an idea of the outreach of this, before I even knew this history, I possessed the uh, work by William Reed that I quoted last week called Authentic Records of Revival Now in Progress in the United Kingdom in 1859. And I also knew that Banner of Truth had published a separate volume of Spurgeon sermons called the Revival Year Sermons of 1859. So that was the year that they, his 
assembly had outgrown the new Park Street pulpit and needed a larger building, and that was the year the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit was finished and a revival came there. And that church uh, held up to 10,000. And of course, during that revival, it was packed. But when I was teaching this before, I was finding other sources and there was a compilation of how this revival spread to other countries in Europe and so on. And I was looking through this book. I didn't have the whole thing. I was just looking for examples. Uh, it was online, but I think that book was a thousand and sixty-three pages of testimonies of how this revival came to other places. I'll just give you an example. Sweden, a correspondent of the Freeman writes, all who love and pray for the extension of the Redeemer's kingdom will be rejoiced to hear that Sweden is still receiving visitations of mercy from the giver of all good. Most cheering intelligence is received by us almost continually from various parts of the country concerning the progress of the good work. But for that, I must confine myself only to a few facts and so on. And he talks about some examples of revival that he was knew that was going on in Switzerland. A letter, Mr. Editor, will you kindly communicate to your numerous readers the extracts of two letters I have this day received from Geneva concerning the work of God there through the instrumentality of a brother, Reginald Radcliffe. An open-air meeting had been intimated for this evening. The owner of the ground had granted his permission, which he recalled at the last moment. So the police tried to stop this preacher. They said, you can't preach here, and the only place to speak from was a box of a carriage, and there Mr. Radcliffe stood with his interpreter near him. About 2,000 hearers were there assembled and begun to sing a hymn when the police came forward. A number of men behind him drew out a most formal-looking little stick mounted with silver and put it, almost shook it into the pastor's face and arrested the people at the meeting. Mr. Radcliffe said the police have stopped the meeting, but I invite you all to come with me to the country place where I live. And there in front of my house, we will have our meeting in the open air. Now you will come with me. A burst of applause and a clapping of hands of 2,000 people responded to this invitation. God sent me here, said the pastor, and no power on earth is able to quiet me. Italy. The work of evangelizing progresses satisfactorily at Spezia, Graglia, and Biella. Almost, also all at Milan, there is a great encouragement in Florence. The blessing of God causes work of preaching and Christian union to prosper. London, and I won't even read the account there. You can have some kind of uh, idea of it, but just to mention the Metropolitan Tabernacle, this is a report from Spurgeon's Church at the meeting of the Sunday School Convention held in Exeter Hall and reported in our last. The Reverend Mr. Nagel said he had been three weeks in London but had seen no sight so splendid as that of the six thousand children belonging to 40 schools gathered together on Sunday in Mr. Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. They made the most beautiful concert, too, that he had ever heard. 6,000 infant voices united and singing to a beautiful melody, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. This is a website, ukwells.org, that's active right now to have no other purpose but to really document 
the history of this revival in England in 1859. And so you could see the places that were affected by this revival. But if you see the plus and the minus sign, when you hit that plus sign, it just goes in further and further. This thing expands and you see all of these dots where this revival uh, came to England in 1859. It says a wonderful work is going on at Beckley Northam and Breed. The chapels are crammed and sobs and cries are to be heard throughout the congregations. Nearly 100 souls have been added to the church at Beckley in about five weeks. To God be the glory. Oh, could you but hear the dear children sing, weep and pray. It would do your soul good. You may think it excitement, but it is not. It is a reality. And you would think so if you were amongst them. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. A friend at Staplehurst says, I was at Nordham on business a few days since, and a friend told me that such was the influence of the awakening that religion was the one theme of conversation that converts have to a large extent been young men of the laboring class. Another correspondent from the same neighborhood writes us, I am thankful to say the cry is continually being heard. What must I do to be saved? I was at Nordham Chapel last Friday evening. There was weeping and sobbing all over the place and many souls were made happy. I now feel something of the reality of religion. Above 140 have been added to the church at Beckley, nearly 50 at Nordham from 80 to 90 at Breed, from 40 to 50 at Pesmara. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Welsh Revival, one of the main instruments of the Welsh Revival was David Morgan. An entry in his diary for 1855 gives us a glimpse into his soul. It is a big thing to have a feeling that God would revive his work. Whoever possesses such a feeling will be compelled to do all he can to revive the Lord's work. By reading the history of the church, we find that the great cause fluctuates up and down through the ages. But whenever the Lord draws near to save, there was some considerable expectancy amongst the godly for his coming. As well as praying, we should be doing our utmost to revive the work and so on. Revival comes to Wells, the story of the 1859 revival in Wells, Evangelical Press of Wells. Well, behind this, and to encourage us, um, I was looking yesterday, and I, I didn't know I had already documented this, but uh, somebody gave a quote of what the churches were like prior to the coming of the revival in Ireland, and there were six testimonies, and they were so shocking that one man said that uh, he was trying so hard just to get his fellow pastors to start a prayer meeting and they weren't interested. And another says, in my congregation, things were so cold and dead. And I pleaded with the people to have a prayer meeting and it was like, you know, we're okay, we're converted. Uh, and they, he could not prevail upon them and he just uh, reproved them publicly for their indifference. These were the conditions prior to the revival and I had found a copy of that it was a report uh, given but i found it in a magazine from 1860 and in those old days these magazines were compiled yearly and it was about 100 pages but this was just one report but to encourage us things are really really dark 
right now. And it would be so easy to have this passive resignation that things can't get better. And you look at this lady, a Baptist lady, going around. They called them pulpiters in the day. They would go from house to house. They would have books that you could buy, um, you know, years ago. It'd be like Richard Baxter's called The Unconverted and numerous books. And she had went in there and tried to give the gospel. She didn't know she was making an impression on James McKilkin in the day. And that these young men would start to pray and revival would come to Ulster. We do these work and so, for the Lord and sometimes we don't see any visible fruit and we don't know what the end might be. It's always been striking to me that the conversion experience of Charles Virgin and John Owen are so similar that they both went into a chapel. They both had been under awakening for close to five years. Uh, they go into a chapel and they don't even know the name of the person who was preaching to them. John Owen was so under conviction and so uh, it affected him so much physically. They had gone there to hear one of the better known Puritans and he didn't show up and another man came in and he uh, preached a sermon and Owen responded to it and that's where he believes he was converted and at least assured and neither Spurgeon nor Owen knew who the men were. In fact, Owen said, I tried to find out who that man was and he wasn't successful. Those men don't didn't know the effect that they would have on two of the greatest men that God has used in the Christian church. The other thing, though, is so obvious. There were no pastors that were notable in the layman's prayer revival. That's what's so amazing about this. Now, pastors were preaching at the time. Dwight Moody was really affected by this revival. It was the beginning of his ministry and other pastors. But for if you overlook at the whole picture, it was the layman who had a burden to pray. And they weren't praying for revival. They were praying just for the growth of the church. They, there's no way they could have known how this would spread. I mean, Jeremiah Lanfear, a 40-year-old man, uh, now they have a, you know, a statue of him and that place outside of the church and so on. He would never have sought that. And he just wanted to reach Manhattan. That's what they appointed him to do. He did it faithfully. He was on his face before God, just almost in despair. Uh, what's going to happen? Is there anything I could do to reach these people? And it occurred to him to have this prayer meeting. And, you know, for that first half hour, can you imagine a half an hour where you're just questioning everything and you don't know that in God's timing, Six, five other men are going to come in the next week, 20, the next week more, and then it starts to spread out and they do this once a day. Uh, we cannot limit God. I know it's dark right now, but I am simply astounded. And every time I teach on this revival, and I know it's not well known anymore of what God is able to do through a couple of men. You look like you have a question, brother.
some of them very dark. Um, so while this revival is going on, Jack the Ripper is tearing through London. And um, there's a lot of evil that surrounds them. Well, and in, in, in America as well, you, this is right on the eve of the Civil War, and it was occupying. Yeah, yeah. And also, within a couple of months after this revival started in Manhattan, the entire financial foundation of that city had just collapsed. There was, these people were really prosperous before and then in a short time. Well, a lot of people say, well, of course, so the revival came because everybody was in a state of panic and so on. The problem with that theory is the black slaves down in Gerardo's church didn't have money in banks and there was a great revival that came to them too. And so that explanation just simply does not work. It would have been really easy for the, the, the churchmen at that time to look at the world around them and say, you know what, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Why don't we just board up and take kind of like a, let's huddle together into our little groups and let the world do what the world's going to do. And yet they didn't, they didn't do that. Well, and the other thing, and we really got to put weight upon this. If God, if people are praying to God, God has stirred them up. It says in Zechariah 4 that he will give them a spirit of grace and supplication. We want God to do that in us and the people around us and so on. That we get a burden for prayer. We would love to see this church filled. There hasn't been a day, I mean, not, not a day, a week, you know, where I was in, prayer with the people of Owensboro where this church hasn't been brought up since I've come here. And I wouldn't have it otherwise. There is no way that I'm going to go to a place like this and teach and not ask for the Lord, not just to bless the history lesson, but to f not forget that flock on the outside of such a strategic metropolitan area. You guys have a great building. I mean, their biggest burden right now at Grace is that they need a bigger building. You're in a strategic location. We need to just pray that God would build his church, but I'm, I'm over on my time. Do you have anything you need to say, Pastor? I wanted to clarify where I was going with my thoughts. It seemed like I was being really good. Um, I think that What it has to do with us is that we can see an example in our in human history where God, in the midst of some very dark times, um, did not forget His people and caused revival um, to spread throughout the land. And the other thing, also, these conversions, and I've read a lot of them. I mean, they were very, very sincere. This wasn't a superficial work of the Spirit. It was real revival. And you saw it in these lives of the people who were converted. Pastor DeVito? Okay, I'm going to close in prayer. I know I'm over. So, Holy Spirit, come upon your people again. I can only look at these things and Marvel, this history is 
mind-boggling, beyond my comprehension. But there are just too many reports from too many places that attest that this really did, in fact, happen. So how could we not pray, do it again, Lord, you are certainly capable of this. Your spirit could go throughout this land. It is said that almost a million people were converted as a result of this revival. Minimally, that would be one out of 30 people, given the population of that day, and maybe one out of 10. All we know is if something like that happened to this country, it would be enormous. So how could we not desire that? We commit these things to you. In Jesus' name, amen.